Oh, fair enough. Finally, something we agree on that'll bring us together. Yes, the donkey balls. That and Ted Lasso. Bottle of Brown podcast. I am your host, Danny Paul. With me in the Bob Media Studios this evening are the co-hosts, Leon Coventry <laughs> and Mr. Jones. Oh, yes! Welcome, gentlemen. Glad hello, to be here, Danny. Hello, hello. Yes, good we to are see your smiling faces. Tonight, which is a Wednesday, which we don't normally record on Wednesdays. This is the night before thanksgiving and so it is a day in which we give thanks yep and and we only eat brown meat not not the white meat of the turkey in honor of the show in honor of the show as of course moist (laughs) very moist and tender (laughs) from the dark part of the bird as you do because i'm a man you know what I don't on I this day of days. You know what? Can I can we just step back in. a second? Jump you know, in. It's funny. I uh I was one of those random people that oh, I, only the white meat, only the white meat for me. And then somebody actually said after I wolf like 10 buffalo wings one day, they're like, I thought you only eat white meat. I'm like, well, I do. Like, what do you think you're eating now? And a light bulb went off and I realized what I'd been doing to myself for so many years cheating myself out of the good lies because of because of some stigma that was probably put in my head when i was five years old that it's not as good and i was wrong i was so so wrong it's all in your mind man all those years you missed out on eating all that nice dark meat. Mm-hmm. <laughs> all right so it is uh carry the two it is the 24th of November in this year, 2021. And we have a very special episode for you listeners out there. All of the Bobs joining us, the Magic 25. What is your brown, Leon? Tonight, uh, I've had pin hook before, but tonight I have a different pin hook. As Triple B told me, they have different verticals every year. And this one is 119.9 proof. Wow. So happy vacation to me. And uh, I hope that I remember the second half of tonight. (laughs) (laughs) It's about right. Mr. Jones, what about you? Uh, I'm doing the four raises single barrel. Um, You know, it's 50%, a little bit lighter than, uh, so we got a hundred proof over here um, than Mr. Leon over there. But uh, new, I don't really drink four roses. I am becoming a large fan. It is... uh, Wonderfully smooth, a little malty, very good. It's an odd one, it's isn't a, it? It's a good one, and I will tell you, it's one of the few distilleries where you can grab two bottles next to each other that are four roses, something that's a small batch or single barrel mm-hmm. or, or just the standard, and none of them taste anything close to each other. So it's, it's I don't know how they, I got to go to that distillery just to see if they do things differently, but they, they, 
it's very different flavor profiles for each one. So if you're out there and you've had a four roses and you're like, I don't like it, try a different bottle. You just give it another bottle to try because they make so many different variations. I, I don't know. More well, more so than like Buffalo Trace or something. Yeah, I, I went to my local uh, store and I picked up two bottles. One's an Angel Envy that was a small kind of production in a cherry cast kind of structure. And it's good. But then I picked up this. And the Angels was twice as much as this single barrel. And uh, hmm. I think this is twice as good. Like Angel Envy is just like, I gave it another whirl. I found it always too hot. Um, hmm. I wonder about Angels because that bottle has better. a lot of artistic value to it. Are they are they more marketing than substance? What do you think? Well, uh, my opinion, but. Yeah, well, the, you know, the story behind Angels Envy, right? So one of the head distillers... I want to say he was either uh, Elijah Craig, but I think he had something to do with Buffalo Trace and he retired. And then his grandkids said, hey, grandpa, we, we want to make our own bourbon. And he basically showed him how to make bourbon and he came up with a recipe that's Angel's Envy. And they created their own distillery. They basically only had the one bottle and mm -hmm. then they started making a couple different kinds. I've, I've been to that distillery in Louisville. It's in Louisville, Kentucky. It's like right there in the city, uh, downtown. It's really cool location. It's very small and it, uh, had really no intention of becoming as big as it is. What's interesting is I think that Bacardi picked it up hmm. and that's oh. what made it popular. And uh, they, their whole deal is that they like to to make uh, a really good bourbon and then finish it in different uh, casks. So they have a, a one that's a sweet one in uh, the rum cask, and I think that's their rye. And then if you the the normal standard one is finished in a port barrel, but both of them have a pretty sweet, smooth finish, and that's just their thing. But it's not necessarily strong. And uh, people that are maybe, you know, just starting out in the bourbon world would, would, I think, tend to like Angel's Envy more because it's a little, I, you said it's burning. I find it mild, super mild. Wow. I, I, I remember the first one, like, like the regular one a few years back on the golf course, you know, swigging out of the bottle. And I remember it was just burning. Could be the fact is it wasn't cold and it was just, you know, been sitting in the golf bag for in the, in the heat, which doesn't do it very good justice either. So I, I don't remember it as fondly as, as what, but I gave this one a new shot and I, I'm still going to finish it. Don't get me wrong. I'm not pouring it down the drain. Um, but it's different, which is why I bought it in the first place. With that be being said, most four roses, I like better than angels envy, but it is a cool bottle to have on your, on your rack. And since I've been there, I like them. I like the yeah. rye. I like the rye a lot more. So, if you, so the, if you the, see bottle the bottle has rye. angels wings on it, but isn't there some significance to the idea of angels with regards to bourbon? I don't remember. I, I'm sure they told me uh, it was at the tail end of my bourbon cut versus an angel's cut. Oh yeah. 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 Mm -hmm. Yeah. I think that's probably, well, the devil's cut is what ends up in the, uh, in the barrel, in the wood, they call that the devil's cut mm. and the, the angel share is what evaporates. So, you know, there's a little bit that evaporates out of the barrel every year. So uh, they say, it. you know, Pappy's 23 years only really got half the liquor that was poured in the barrel initially because the angels took half of it. So, so the angels can't have this. Yeah. 
Very well. That's a good um, name then. I, I never even picked up on the name, but that's a great name. Angel's Envy. Like they didn't get this cut. This one that was, was the left first thing the I thought of was. Mm-hmm. Well, I'm just an idiot then. The angels don't get it. It stayed in the bottle. I love it. Okay. So sorry. I am revisiting the game of Thrones with the wife on HBO max. Mm. We didn't want to wait for the week by week of succession. And we couldn't find another show that both of us agreed on. So we went back to game of Thrones. And so in honor of going back to game of Thrones, loose tie into Thanksgiving and family and power dynamics. I decided to go with the song of fire, which is a Johnny Walker spinoff of the game of Thrones. It is, how do, it's a spicy rendition. It's not quite fireball. It is still legitimately scotch, but it is spicy. Does it have cinnamon? Like notes of cinnamon? I wouldn't suggest it has cinnamon, but it does feel like they're cooking this one because the other one I've tried. So this is the Song of Fire and it's got the dragon from House Targaryen on it. I say, do you like it better than White Walker? The other one I tried was White Walker. I got to say, I liked White Walker better because it felt colder. Now, uh, to be fair, the White Walker bottle, they want you to throw in the ice because they have a special coating on the outside of the bottle to mm. where the bottle turns blue like a Coors Light can. So if you've mm. got temperature-sensitive labeling, obviously it's part of the marketing. So I want to say that the, the, the Song of Ice was, so the White Walker was cooler. And so maybe they want you to drink this at room temperature. Anyway, it's complicated. It's, it's uh, lots of ins and outs, uh, what have you. Yeah, a diff- a, an odd different show. You'll have to tell us how that night ended up. Yeah, yeah, I can't, I can't speak to the science. What I can tell you is I am enjoying it. Good. I have to try that one. So tonight is a very special episode of the Bottle of Brown podcast. And I want to make note to all of you Bobs out there, the Magic 25 that are listening. Back in episode 39... One of Leon's epic loaves was about the state of kindness and how all of our media is awful, toxic, daft waste. And he ran across a nice little show on Apple TV's uh, streaming service called Ted Lasso. I discovered Ted Lasso a little bit later. And I have to say that above all else in, I want to say 20 years, The first season of Ted Lasso was the best season of television I have ever seen, specifically as it speaks to how it affected me personally. I loved everything about it. And I am Mm -hmm. a school, I am, I am, I am a disciple of the Lasso way. And the reason that we've (laughs) decided on this one, I think one is it's symbolic that it's Thanksgiving. We give thanks. And also we were waiting for Mr. Jones to catch up because he did not discover it as fast as we did, but I'm happy to say, we are now ready to talk about it. The last way. Yeah. I, uh, sadly, even as big of a soccer nut that I am or football, depending on how you, what part of the pond you're on, but I am sadly didn't discover it till now simply because I didn't want to pay for another streaming service. And I understand, uh, having another bill doesn't really work, but this is worth it. <laughs> it's just worth it at the end of the day. Um, it's very funny. And I guess maybe we'll get into this, but I'm just curious to see as you guys watch it, I, I pick it apart more of like what it's trying to portray of sense of, you know, 
fact and fiction and, and whatnot and some of the characters and way that some of the things kind of play out for what happened in the past few years of uh, in, in the world of English Premier League. And um, it's very interesting. It's a very good show, uh, especially for me. So I can't wait to watch it again and again and again. And I'm interested and I'm really interested to hear your perspective. I think when I first started watching, I, I am not a football or soccer fan whatsoever. Uh, I like American football. And I think that was actually one of the reasons I didn't jump out and watch the show right off the bat because I am a few huge Sudeikis fan, but I, uh, like, I don't care for soccer. I think I'm going to lose a lot of the jokes in this. Um, uh, but to, to Danny's point, when I was going through that rant, uh, and you know, I, I was still kind of halfway through season one at the time. And I realized how different this show really is. And I said uh, a lot about how frustrated I was that this is the only one of its kind. And then, I, you know, the more I've been thinking about it after I've finished season two now and and why I think this show is so much different is because it's so weird to me that they had to be brave and different and um and really push the boundaries by doing something good you know mm. it's now the cheap shot the easy thing to do is shock disaster make people sad or scared or fear and you know in a time where probably all of us need comedy and kindness more than ever i I think they just nailed it right off, you know, just nailed it. And I think where I was trying to get at with a lot of that rant is that because what we watch news, uh, unless you watch sports, but even sports has got its own thing, but there's some positivity. That's probably why I like sports so much is because there are wins. <laughs> there's just no, I'm sorry. I'm just going to rant about it forever. I know that this, this show is all about it, but <laughs> There's just so many things that I respect about them. And I just want to call out that they were brave enough to buck the trend and do something totally different. And what frustrated me was this shouldn't have been that hard to do, but they did it in such a witty way and so sharp that I don't think, even though they slaughtered at the awards, this last, uh, the award, uh, the, and was it, yeah, it, yeah, we're going to yeah. talk about that slaughtered at it i still don't think they got enough credit for what they were able to do with this show so anyway yeah let's kick it off so i had heard about the show and i'm mildly interested in soccer just from the fact of it being a global sport i enjoy that it is the provence of basically every country but our own and I know that Mr. Jones is a huge fan. Like that fucker goes, gets up at 6 a.m. to go to a bar to watch. Huge. What I loved about it was the first reaction we got out of him after the first few episodes was he knew exactly who Roy was. And I, that just made me laugh. That just charmed my heart. Um, the other no part idea. of it is it's your standard person. fish out of water story. Oh, yeah. He's exactly it's, like that. It's an American coach going to a non-American place with a non-American sport and the idea is that the basic fundamentals of coaching and being a good person will pay dividends no matter where you are. So the universality of it really appealed to me. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So much so that I put together a list of 10 things. Uh, and this would be part of business news if we were going into the normal show format. And I, I want you guys to sound off on this. But the 
that I put together 10 things that I think we can learn from Lasso from a business sense, just to stay on brand with the podcast. Uh, they do drink a lot of beer in this show, and I love that. So anybody that's listening to us in the UK, going to the pub is a thing. That's not an American thing. So let us adapt to the idea that somebody's always in the pub, always getting a beer. Um, that was new, I think, to most people. But uh, let's start with number one, first and foremost. Out of the top 10 things that I got out of this show, kindness wins. Mm-hmm. So I don't know if I've talked to you guys offline about this before, but there's a book that I read called The No Asshole Rule by Robert Sutton. And the basic thesis of the book is high performance is wonderful, but not to the detriment of the organization. You're going to hear a lot of things about EQ, LQ, empathy, working with others, your ability to get along as part of a team, as part of a group. You know, the idea of the phenomenal performer that just leaves everybody else in his wake, that doesn't work. So being nice is now a requisite. And one of the examples from the book that I remember very much was a guy that was top of the sales heap. He just absolutely murdered his numbers. Like he was 220, 250% of his quota every quarter. He was the guy. The challenge of that was, he pissed off everybody in the organization. He pissed off sales support. He pissed off accounting. He pissed off logistics. He was tough to manage from other managers. The only one that supported him was the CEO and his immediate boss. And what happened was somebody put together, and I forgot who it was. It might've been the author. It might've been uh, the person that was paying attention to this, but they put together kind of an equation of, all right, here's how much revenue you brought in. Here's minus EBITDA. And so here is the profit that you brought in. Here is your worth. Now let's calculate all of the mental health aggravation, hours wasted in meetings, hours wasted at the water cooler, people who quit who we now have to rehire and onboard. And they tallied up all of those ancillary expenses that you wouldn't think of. And it was like 5X what the asshole brought in. And so when you look at it from a holistic perspective, that guy is not killing it. He's killing the organization. What do you guys mm-hmm. think about that? I mean, I, th- I personally am a huge fan of the kindness wins concept in peer. You know, I think you hear it over and over, right? You get, you get pulled over from a cop, right? And he's probably in, or she isn't probably our 10 of their shift. Uh, they know nobody likes them. They don't want to pull you over. They don't enjoy this process, but for so, you could make the choice to be a dick and be aggressive. And somehow you think that makes you feel better and that you're the, the one up on this situation, or you could be nice. And how many times have you heard of someone being nice and the cop let him go versus how many people said, I was like, fuck him and fuck that dick and blah, blah, blah. Who's he think? I pay taxes and blah, blah, blah. Did that person ever get let go? No. Right. I think that there's, we as human beings like to put ourselves on some intellectual pedestal, like emotions can't affect us and that we can make all of our decisions based on rational thought. And it's not true. Our emotions drive so much of what we do and our feelings drive so much of what we do that 
even though we'd like to ignore it and pretend that feelings aren't real and emotions aren't real and that we can just, uh, you know, be a dick and doesn't make any difference or be nice and it makes no difference. And you believe in the nice guys finish last mantra, then it, you just point out where that happens. You know, it's not true. It's not real. What's real is how people make you feel. And, uh, you know, that was actually something I really valued from my former company because uh, service was safety was number one, but service was number two. Right. And People will never remember what you said, but they will remember how you made them feel. 100%. And that is exactly where the kindness wins and how that gets interwoven into business. Business is just a relationship that's monetized. So mm -hmm. you just have to understand that relationship part is actually important too. Hundred percent. Uh, number nine, team overcomes talent. Wait. So this kind of goes to the whole kind of kindness wins, no asshole deal. Uh, certain professions where a singular talent can accomplish wonders, you want to bring everybody in. It's not acceptable to have just one dude. This is where I ask for Mr. Jones to throw in a commentary because we're talking about. Jamie Todd. There's a very Basically, key scene yeah. where Jamie Todd doesn't want to practice and Ted Man gets shitty. in his face and Ted says absolutely nothing, but his subtext, his tone and his volume speak everything. What do you think about that? No, it, it's it, look, I always live by the mantra, like one team, one dream, right? You know, um, it's uh it's an interesting kind of concept, but if you all aren't on the same page, you all aren't going to get it done. Maybe, maybe you will limp your way over the finish line, but the reality is, is that you all have to be working together for the same goal. And it's interesting that this brings in the team sports aspect, especially with soccer is that it, look, no matter in the world of soccer, it's, 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 it's become the haves and have nots a lot. And in this case, you can build a team of superstars and put them on the pitch, but just because you did that, you might win a local tournament. You might make, you know, domestic tournaments and so forth. And you could be the top of the heap year in and year out, but you're always thirsting for something more like your drive to building that perfect team is to win the pinnacle of the tournament, which in this case would be champions league or whatnot. That is what your real goal is in the world of global soccer. That's the best of the best pitted against each other. And it's what you try and do. You can't do that if you all aren't on the same page. And that's why I think year in and year out, you've watched teams being built to have this sense of arrogancy, but they don't work well together as a team and they actually don't win either. And, you know, they, these <laughs> sovereign nations that own teams throw more and more money at it to try and win. And it's interesting always to watch them fail because the truth is the team that works together is the team that succeeds. Well said. Uh, number eight was 
it starts at the top. Now, I am a big fan of Peter Drucker. He's the father of management or the godfather of management in business circles. And he always said the culture eats strategy for breakfast. Well, if anybody's paying any attention, and I'm talking to you, Leon, culture starts at the top. You know why? Because everybody's looking at the boss. So the executive vice presidents are looking at the president. The senior vice presidents are looking at the executive vice presidents. The directors are looking at the senior vice presidents. The middle managers are looking at the directors. Everybody on the ladder is looking up to figure out what works, how can I get ahead, what is expected of me. And so it starts at the top. And if you want to know what the culture of a company is, the culture starts at the top. So the head guy, how he acts or she, how they behave, how they think about things, their outlook on business, their outlook on life, that permeates through the organization. Everything starts at the top. Mm -hmm. Well, I think... They, they're, it's absolutely true. And you know that there are people that make a living out there uh, doing culture change and they always will start at the top. They'll say, I just, you know, you guys can give me a check if you want to, but at the end of the day, if you're not going to buy into it, then nobody else is right. That's how the conversation always starts. So it's absolutely true. And I, that's what I love about Ted Lasso is you, how does a person who knows virtually nothing about the game uh, going to come in and lead a bunch of people who obviously know much more about it than they, than he does. How is he going to lead them? Right. How is just being a nice guy going to lead these people? And then you start to realize exactly, especially in the business world, the bet, the biggest expert in the company is very likely not the CEO or the CFO or the CIO or anybody on the board. They're not the expert. That isn't their job, right? Their job is not to be an expert, uh, you know, and I, you know, not to get too political, but the expert in being an American isn't the president of the United States either, right? That's why they have a cabinet of experts, right? So once you start to realize that, your role is not to be the expert, but to be the leader, to be, to set the culture, you know, is, what is it? What is your culture? Is your culture that we're going to be kind to each other, that we're going to work together, that that's more important than, and then the bottom line is your culture, uh, you know, we're a struggling company. Uh, we need to shake this company up from the, you know, the bottom all the way up to the top. We're going to do the whole thing. You know, and and that's that's a company too. Some companies are like we're just we're just on fire right now, and we are in hyperinflation, and we're just trying to figure out how to not break any laws and try to keep the wheel moving. Right, so you can always tell what type of culture that is right out the bat. I feel like every startup. And I might be totally wrong. I just, maybe this is just the, uh, the stigma that goes along with startups is very hippie-esque, right? Like we're <laughs> going to start this company and we're going to get a bunch of people who's going to wear flip-flops and bring their dogs to work. And, you know, work is so cool and we're so different. We'll put in the extra hours. That's cool because we love what we do. And I think everybody kind of wants to start there, but nobody ends up there, right? Because every company ends up taking some shape based on regulations and everything else that comes down the pipe and everyone gets scarred and 
and dysfunctional. It's really hard to keep it. Yeah. Southwest Airlines, great example, right? Everybody patted Southwest Airlines on the back for how is this airline that's been running for 20 years still acting like a startup? You know, the union gets along with leadership. Everyone likes each other. It, where's that now? You know, they're getting ready to go out and pick it. As a matter of fact, I think they're going to pick it this weekend. So it, it, it things happen and culture modifies and, and, and changes. And I, uh, I think one of the best parts about Ted Lasso is how he reels it in because everything keeps coming at them. The press hates him. The, the players hate him. Uh, the previous hate owner him. hate him. The fans hate him. And he just blocks all of that out. His job is to make sure that his players, his experts know exactly what they're supposed to do, when they're supposed to do it, understand that you are the expert. I'm not the expert. I'm just here to help you execute the job that, that you know how to do the best you possibly can. That's his job, right? And I think everybody accepts that. And it really transitions well into business life. It really, really does. And, and I think it, that model it, you know, if you stick to it, because there's nobody out there who doesn't think that uh, watching Ted Lasso, that he's not genuine. He's the most genuine character in television. And uh, I think staying, being an authentic leader or, authentic, or genuine leader goes a long way. Uh, and okay, I'm done rambling. I, I had her. Yeah, I don't know. What was that? Does that classify as a rant? I don't even know. I was pretty well, soft spoken. You didn't yeah. want angry, so I don't know if it classifies. You stayed on topic. There you go. That's the point. Um, number seven, talent in unlikely places. And this speaks only to one character, Nate the Great. Mm, My Nate favorite great. scene with regards to this topic was a little moment where they're on the pitch and Trent Krim, the independent, <laughs> walked up and was following them around. And Trent said, what exactly does Nate the Great do? And Ted says, I'm not exactly sure what his title is. Hey, coach, what's Nate's job around here? Kit man. There you go. Kit man. Do you mean to tell me you're entrusting a Premier League's team attack to the kit man? That young fella's forgot more about this sport than I'll ever know. Heck, might be a genius. Find and mine the talent in an organization. Mr. Jones, what do you think? It's kind of the reality when you get down to what taking American football out because obviously the coach is the one actually kind of moving the chess pieces and whatnot, um, calling plays or having more influence into the game. But I think when we talk about EPL soccer, a lot of times, you know, there's a, there's a sense of we're going to do this for the first, you know, quarter, 20 minutes, and then we'll do this in the next 20 minutes. It's whether you provide, you put on pressure or you absorb pressure, you play the counter, you work the wings, depends on your strategy of how you want to play. And what's interesting about it is that like the coach isn't necessarily the one calling the shots. It's that a lot of this stuff is trickled down to what we alluded to early is, you know, what Leon was saying about, you know, the president is the biggest American. He has a cabinet for that. Well, it's true on the pitch too. The coaches are the ones who are setting things up and, you know, working with the players to counteract um, the, the attack that's coming and what to do with this. And when you see this or these, these situations, they're the ones working with the players to kind of reality shape them to be, 
basically ready for what to expect on the pitch on game day. So to this situation is that, you know, it is true that the coaching staff is the one that really knows the, you know, the people actually working with the players. And so it makes a lot of sense when you say, you know, the unlikely talent is, you know, the person that you're not going to have on the camera on all the time. And then that being said too, sometimes the most talented player is the one, you know, not on the pitch. They're either a senior player or a young player, you know, trying to come up or trying to pass on knowledge to uh, the other players that are out there. And so, you know, look at, you know, I, I love Manchester United and then bringing back Cristiano Ronaldo, you know, and kind of what he does for Nathan or for Greenwood is worth so much in his development as a young player in his teens, getting one of the greatest goal scorers of all times talent. So, you know, not to say Cristiano is the best player on the pitch, but not to say Nathan Greenwood isn't the next greatest player. And so his talent is going to be developed over time. I mean, how many times in a sport have you seen the captain not be the all-star on the team? Not the one with the most goals or points or, you know, whatever oh, it is. It, yeah. Most often it's not right. It's they're, not. Yeah. They're the ones that are, that have the locker room. They're the ones that have the, the trust and the respect uh, of the, of the locker room. So, mm -hmm. um, and you know what, I, when I, Danny, when I read this point too, I have, I'm, I have respect for leaders that know their cleaning lady's name or know the guy behind the counter's name and their kid's name, right? They, nobody has respect for people who think they're above and better than everyone else. It doesn't matter who they are. And uh, I have had the opportunity to meet Mr. Buffett at one point in my life. And there's no doubt that that man can smoke me in any business conversation or, or any investment in the world. But he didn't treat me like I was some peon. He talked to me like a real person. And he, and so that my respect level is a whole different level, right? Like, I don't know what he did. It's not like I deserved it or earned it, but he still gave it to me anyway. So I think that there's a lot of credibility given to people that realize that every piece, every cog in the organization, on the team, the kit master, whatever, the, you know, the water boy, they all play a role, respect the role, respect the person trying to do their best at the role. Number six, find an honest critic. This appeals more to egotistical leaders, the kind of guys that surround themselves with yes men. I'm thinking specifically of guys like Tony Shea, the Zappos CEO, who was just surrounded by yes men so much that he got delusional. And uh, rest in peace, Tony. But he's a perfect example of what happens when you surround yourself with sycophants that don't give you truth. Make sure you have somebody that keeps you grounded. It can be a spouse. It can be a kitchen cabinet of best friends. I happen to have one. I made a show around it. But the idea is that you want to have people that will give you an honest take and a straightforward piece of feedback. Make sure that you have somebody objectively looking at you and your business for excellent performance. Leon, what do you think about that? I think it's the most important thing in the world. And I've been part of many different organizations and very rarely 
is the culture in a position where anyone feels comfortable telling their leader how it is or how it should be or where they're wrong? That's that's one of the hardest things to cultivate. I I've almost never seen it successfully done. I've heard those infamous words. I have an open door. You can come <laughs> in anytime. Right. <laughs> who, who the fuck takes that invite? Yeah, the guy that you see for the last time. Yeah, that walk day. into the That's lion's den. Is. Yeah. So, you know, I've, I've heard this. You know, I, I appreciate your honest feedback. We've watched movies where, you know, somebody gives it to the man and then the man goes, you know, I respect you for doing that. It's not real. I would love it. I do appreciate it. But I also catch myself when I don't. Like, there's times I'm like, I can't believe I was such a dick about that, you know. But if if it catches you in the wrong mood, which by the way, I think I've already said this in point one, emotions matter. You catch mm. me on the wrong mood. You catch me on the wrong day. I just went to battle and war for the last two hours. And you're going to come in here and tell me how you know something better. Go pound sand. So you have to be careful, you know, when you give that feedback, that's real. That's real. Let's, let's not talk. Let's not talk about utopia land or some mythical place that doesn't exist where people don't, you know, just love being told how to do their jobs better because it doesn't exist. Um, but I will say that if you want to be better, if you want to be a stronger organization, you have to listen to people who are brave enough and willing to give feedback. You don't have to take it all the time, but you certainly have to do uh, your, your best because people that are giving feedback also don't know all the facts either, right? You can't, you know, you take it in, you have to take it in. You have to appreciate it. That's the, that's all you can do when you're a leader is take it in and appreciate it and do the best you can to create an environment where people feel comfortable, but it's, it's a very hard thing to do. And, and people will always squash it because it's scary to come up and tell somebody how to do their job better, what they're doing wrong. I mean, it's hard to take the criticism though. Like it's hard to be on the receiving end. You know, I get it. We always want to do better in the job, but in lots of times we always have to kind of keep focus that having criticism is a positive thing. I think too often we find it as a defense mechanism to no, no, you don't get it. You don't understand. No, this is, you're out of your element. This isn't right. But the reality is, is that having some sense of, you know, uh, criticism against yourself that you will better you is the hardest thing to remember is that these people, you know, obviously it depends on who it's coming from, which is the most important thing, who this is coming from, but you know, it's always a thing to keep open-minded. And I think sometimes that's the hardest thing to kind of take it, you know? Yeah. And I, and I think when you're growing up, this is why I think that the arts and sports are so valuable because Agreed. people that are in sports, they go there, watch tape. They don't take it personally. They're watching tape go. Yeah. I should have hit. I should have had a better block here. I see what I could have done here. That was better. Uh, you know, Danny and I, we did some theater in the day. Right. And every time you do a monologue, anytime you do a skit, anytime you do a dress rehearsal after you were done, 
you'd look to your peers and they would have notes yep. and you, you didn't uh, take it personally. Like, Hey, you need to speak up here. Or you're using this word too much. or You're not enunciating enough or whatever those things are. Anybody that's in show business is very comfortable with notes. It, it, it doesn't, it's not offensive. It's part of the process. Sports is part of the process. Nobody's like, Hey, you know, Tom Brady, he's good enough. He doesn't have to go watch tape. That's bullshit. Right. So <laughs> I think, uh, I think that there's a lot of value in that and, uh, and getting that feedback loop. Uh, and I think people that weren't in sports or the arts, uh, you know, hopefully they got that type of feedback somewhere else where they could accept it and not take it personally. Uh, but I don't know. Am I, am I missing something? Are there some other areas that maybe. Well, I would add one caveat. So the scene that I'm thinking of specifically is when Nate roasts the team and he goes straight up into Roy's face and he says, you know, your speed and your smarts were never what made you who you are. It's your anger. Your anger is your superpower. That's what made you one of the best midfielders in the history of the league. But I haven't seen it all season. You used to run like you were angry at the grass. That anger doesn't come out anymore when you play. And I'm afraid of what it's going to do to you if you keep it for yourself. Mm. And that moment to me was so pivotal because Roy realized it's okay to be angry out there. Mm -hmm. Sometimes he felt like he was trying to bottle it up to be nice. And it's like, no, if you're mad, be mad. but focus it, channel it, use it where it's necessary. And the way that Nate presented it was, it's not that I'm criticizing you. It's this was what made you great. And you're not allowing yourself to use it for the benefit of the team. So the idea of an honest perspective should come from a place of, of benefit, should come from a good spot. So if somebody's going to give you constructive criticism, it should be, you're not doing what made you great. This is what makes you great. So that's my thought on that. Yeah. Number well, five off is what you're saying. <laughs> you could have cut me off a long time ago. If that's I'm what not going to cut at. you off because I like where you're going with it. I like the idea of what you were saying. And it's important. Uh, well, the whole so this point one, is to find the critic, though. So the critic Are you should critiquing me right be, now, yeah. motherfucker? <laughs> the critic the should want you, you to critique me. Well, the critic should want you to win. If the critic doesn't want you to win, destroy them. <laughs> Number five, this is based on my own personal experiences. There must be a dynamic in leadership. You can call it good cop, bad cop. I like to call it golden king and dark prince. You can call it vision versus tactics. There's a lot of different ways that you could balance this. But the idea is that there's an on high and there's an in the trenches and that needs to be the dichotomy of leadership. So nobody does this alone. If you're going to go after a strategic project, if you're going to run an organization, if you're going to build something like a sports team, a startup, like you were talking about, Leon, there's got to be somebody that pays attention to the up high and the down low. And there needs to be that separation of who they are because it helps the people understand who do I go to for this, but also we know that the long is taken care of and we know the short is taken care of. Jay, what do you think about that? Uh, I'm kind of at a loss on this one because I understand that your point. Yeah, phone a friend on this one. Mr. <laughs> Leon, you, you chime in and I'll piggyback on it. I mean, I, I understand that the kind of concept that they're kind of going with here is that 
you need the yin and the yang at the end of the day to have success. And that's kind of what it's kind of driving at here in my, my stance and kind of looking at it. But, you know, there's, there's examples of this throughout the show where the good and the bad, but you need to find a way to leverage both. We've gone in the past, we've talked about Myers-Briggs and all the different personality tests. And why are those so important? For a couple of reasons. One, it's nice to know who you're dealing with and how to handle it better. But the the other thing is, if you really want a good, strong team, you should probably have a couple people in every category. And uh, I think it's the same. Obviously, it's the same in sports, right? I, the defenders don't have the same skill set as the forwards, don't have mm-hmm. the same skill set as the centers or the goalies. You know, so it's no and the different. Let's have a little bit of both. Yeah. Balance it out in the middle. Balance right. all and things. Right. Yeah. Same. It's same in hockey. You know, I'm, I'm really, really into hockey. And uh, I think, you know, there's some of the best players in the world. I think that obviously the great one Gretzky is amazing, but I'd like to see him in a goal. Probably not so good. Right. So you need, I think, um, I think that's what you're getting out of here, Danny, but I think it's important to have different skill sets, cultivate the different skill sets on your team. And it's never good to have all of the same type of people. And and I'm not even saying I've seen many times in, in organizations, especially large organizations that the culture and like the sales area might get, you know, you're like, man, that's, that's a room full of the exact same person. Right. And it's, they don't seem to do as well. And sometimes I'm like, man, this salesperson, I, I don't even know how they fit in with these people, but that salesperson has a different skill set, talks a different way, is a little bit quieter, not as much in your face, right? A little bit more analytical, right? And so there's people that he can sell to that, you know, big, loud, boisterous Bob over here can't. So it doesn't even matter what area specifically you're in, but it is very important, very powerful to have different personality types, different skill sets, different body types, different cultures, different, uh, you know, X, Y, Z, right? All of those things make you stronger. It's been proven over and over and over and over again. So, so what I was thinking about when I wrote this was, if you have a boss who's always focused on the vision, who's always about tomorrow, 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 and then at some point his vision leaves everybody behind and you got a bunch of people in worker roles that are like, okay, great. How do we do that? Yeah. But just imagine it's like, okay, great. We imagine now what, how do we do that? You're going to need somebody that can connect the vision to the actual tactical execution. On the other side of it, if you've got somebody that executes extremely well, but they don't have any ideas, you start thinking, why are we doing this? What, what is the purpose of our organization? What is it that we want to accomplish? You run into an area where everything is tactically executed amazingly, but there's no purpose. So mm-hmm. if you can't have all vision and you can't have all execution. And so the idea of having the, the, the golden King versus the dark prince is you got to have somebody focused on the ideas that wants to do something in the future that gives purpose and drive and the reason for being there. But then you have to have a leader that goes, great, this is what we're going to do today. And this is what we're going to do tomorrow so that we can accomplish what he said we're going to do next year. Mm-hmm. Agreed. hundred percent. Number four is 
fix the small problems and cultivate influencers. And this specifically spoke to me about how of all the things that were going wrong with the team and everything that wasn't working, the number one thing that seemed to be the linchpin in the whole organization was the shower water pressure. So Jay, you backed off the last one. Do you want to jump in this one? No, this one's actually a really good one is that some of the, let's take the business side of, of what we're really kind of getting here in the sense of like pretty much what we're used to in the sense of the small problems are the paper cuts. And while you've ever heard like a thousand paper cuts can kill you, it's literally exactly it. It, you know, we understand the big problems, they take out everything, but if you can't fix the small things, like the little things, they also could be the most frustrating. They can also be the biggest time consuming. They, they, they multiply themselves. They augment themselves into being a bigger problem eventually. And so if you can't do that, if you can't fix those little problems, how are you going to fix the big problems? You need to basically look at holistically and this is this is kind of a micromanagement versus a macro and looking at it whereby everybody has an issue at where they work or where that they do and you need to basically identify what those small problems are and hopefully you can find the solution and then why doing that basically breeds a better work environment. And that basically can, in this case, you know, give better work results in a better work environment. So, you know, in looking at this, it's like morale is such a big thing in the office. And when you have little things that end up dragging it down, it becomes toxic. And that's what you want to avoid. And the reality is, is it in a toxic environment, no one wants to be around it. No one, I mean, we can go up and down this whole list, but I mean, the worst thing you ever want to do is spend 40 hours a week in a place that you hate because of these little things or little death nails. And they're basically just kind of in destroying your overall well-being. And so if you can fix those problems, you can in basically create change and in change, you basically have the quote unquote, one team, one dream result is what you're trying to do. And you can actually get somewhere. That will roll us into number three, which I think is where you were going, which is lead by example. So one of my favorite scenes from the whole show is when they're talking about physical fitness. And he was mostly talking to Sam, a little bit to Jamie, but for the most part, they were talking about something completely separate. But then at the end of the episode, Ted says, aside from that, you got to be in shape. So we're all going to run two laps around this field. Anyone who loses to me has to run four more. Let's go. And he takes off and everybody realizes, oh, we got to chase him. That is battlefield leadership. That is you in there, in the trenches, doing the job. That could be a CEO on the call center, listening to phone calls. That could be somebody actually working the counter. A lot of times at a home improvement store, if you go to the return desk, you'll see the store manager. He'll come out of his office and he'll actually work the cashier, the cash register, the whole idea of the guy at the top understands what's going on at the bottom. That to me is the essence of excellent leadership. Now I don't expect them to be there all the time. They get leadership things to do, but can an understanding of what happens throughout the organization, can you lead by example? And that to me is one of the essences of leadership. You got any thoughts on that? 
I, I know personally, I never wanted my boss to beat me in and I never wanted to leave before him or her. Uh, I, I took it personally, you know, I, I, and I started finding myself coming in <laughs> very early and leaving very late. And, uh, I, I think that if you are leading by example, uh, that people will buy into what you have to say. If you don't, they'll nod at you when you talk to them. And as soon as you walk away, uh, you'll, you'll catch a, a dozen knives in your back. They won't believe you. Know, you. Yeah. They won't, they won't believe you. They won't follow you. Uh, there's no motivation for them to do their job any better than the bare minimum that shows up on their review. You yeah, want your think? leader. You want your leader to be someone that relates to you, and if they don't understand what you're going through, and they don't understand um, what it takes, then it becomes difficult to respect them or to take them by their word. You know, it, it becomes the same whole thing of being toxic at the end of the day. You don't need that. So, you know, we've had a lot of leaders that, you know, I think all. Th- three of us have worked in the box store doing home improvement. And it was interesting, you know, looking at some of the leadership that, you know, we had there that, you know, while they may be leaders, they're the ones still stocking the shelves or those still ones working late at night with you. They were the still the ones. And that was kind of an, an interesting dynamic and they were doing it for their leadership and, you know, a lot of regards too. So, you know, while that was a college job for beer money, I think it also instilled a lot of, um, life lessons for us. And I think they also bleed to us today as, you know, the three of us sitting on this call. Um, I think they're important and I think they are full circle. 100%. Number two is to have a vision, a BHAG, a moonshot, a, a stretch goal. I don't think anybody that works for a job where the head person comes out and says, we're going to do 2% better than we did last year. Yay. Is that motivating? Or think back to the 1960s, president John F. Kennedy said, we do things not because they are easy, but because they are hard. We are going to put a man on the moon in the next 10 years. And I'm sure everybody there looked around and said, the fuck's he been drinking? Well, guess what? In 1969, we put a guy on the moon. So the idea of having that gigantic, seemingly unreachable goal has enormous value for an organization. Even you if go it's just a simple statement. <laughs> you going to the moon, damn it, we going to the moon too. <laughs> M-A-R-S. Mars, bitches. <laughs> You're spot on, though. But what do you think about it? What did So in your own organizations, do you have... B-hags. Do you have the big, hairy, audacious goal? Of course. Reach goals. Absolutely. You, you need to have those. Um, and I think it's important to have. But you got to be so careful not to make them so far out of reach that they're impossible to. So are, are they possible? Absolutely. Are they improbable? Maybe. But, you know, if 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 you can touch it, taste it almost there. Um, and you have 
meaning behind the goal. You can't just, our goal is to make 120 million this year. Why? (laughs) You can't. I don't. What what margin are you going to get there to do it? It's easy to do. You give it away. Now you got to have purpose. Well, here's why we want to make 120 million because our competitors are right behind us at 90 million. And if we don't do 120 million, we're losing market share, losing jobs. We're no longer the front runner. People lose our consumers lose respect for us. Uh, we're no longer the premium brand. These are things that people might actually respond to. Not I get to make more money for the people at the top, right? It has to have a real meaningful goal, something that you can uh, buy into. Right? Something yeah. worth celebrating. Yeah, something worth celebrating. And uh, it's just so many times I've seen this backfire where the goal is so far out of reach that then you just unplug and go, oh, that's fucking nuts. The well, people are talking nuts. There, there can be influences that you're out of your control. Like you can set the goal, but like you can't control mm-hmm. a crop. You can't control the price of commodity. You can't control certain things. Yeah. And the sad thing is, is it, and that's what the managers are doing when they're trying to set those goals, but maybe they lose sight of it or something happens. Like, you know, a nine 11, for instance, you know, sucker punch out of, out of nowhere, completely can tank everything or the coronavirus. Didn't expect that one coming. We're off plan. Guess what? Not going to make our goals. It's, it's difficult um, to have it. And um, I, I come from a different world of trying to meet goals. I think the truth is, is lots of times I'm just doing customer service a lot. And that's kind of the goal I'm trying to meet, not lose customers. Well, I was thinking the, specifically the of uh, sorry, go ahead. Well, I was thinking specifically of Hidden Figures, that movie about NASA mm-hmm. and the 1960 space race. I was thinking specifically about how Taraji P. Henson's character had to walk all the way across campus to go to the colored bathroom because she couldn't walk five minutes to go in the white bathroom. And Kevin Costner's character was so emotionally invested in the mission of literally get us to the moon when he turned around and went, where's my computer? And she comes back and she's like, I'm sorry, I was gone. He's like, you were gone for 40 minutes. She's like, I'm sorry. I had to walk all the way across campus to go to the colored bathroom. He went over and he destroyed the white bathroom sign because it was detrimental to the mission. He needed his computer there. And that to me suggested that if you have a mission that people believe in, that's bigger than themselves, that gives them purpose that signals success in what your organization will eventually accomplish. Exactly. Well said. All right. Last one. So many leaders, I think refuse to do this. And I think it's ego. If you failed, say it and move on. Agreed. hundred percent. God, I want to scream that right now. So ridiculous. You failed. Own up to it. You sucked. Take it. So the scene that I'm referring to specifically, and if you haven't been paying attention so far in this episode, spoiler alert, they lost. They lost the league. They got relegated, which means they got sent back to the minors. And Ted gives one of the best locker room speeches that I think I've heard where he's like, Hey, look, everybody's sad. Be sad. And then be a goldfish. The reason he says be a goldfish is because they only have a memory of 10 seconds. So be sad. 
be sad together. This sucks. This happened. We did this. Acknowledge it. And then move forward. Tomorrow's a new day. Get back out there. Go back out and sell something. Go back out and capture a new market. Go back and talk to our customers. And I think that that gets lost on let's find somebody else to blame. Let's be a victim. Let's lobby to Congress. Let's find ways for which this isn't our fault. Yeah, it's your fault. Own it. And then move on. A lot could be said by that. Too often we get too caught up in the winning and losing on things and the grudge hangs over our head so much in politics, but you know, just generally in life, sometimes no one wants to be a loser, but the problem is, is that the resentment ends up carrying over on us and in doing so it ends up creating uh, a toxic or toxic, but it it creates a, a bad environment for us to move on, move past it. And we don't let go. And that's what's sad. So the point of this is, yeah, we have setbacks in life. I mean, that's the goal in sports. You're not always, there's only one team that takes first place. You know, I used to, I used to love the comment, not everybody gets a trophy, but I guess everybody gets a trophy now. (laughs) Losing is a good thing in some ways. It teaches kids that, you know, improve, get better. I still agree that second place is the first loser. But when you say that, realize that losing is a bad thing. Yes. I don't think losing is a bad thing. I think losing is a great thing. And I think the reality is is that too often people put their too much emotion into it. Like, I think the reality about what this comment really has to do is, yes, losing sucks. The emotion of this sucks. But you need not let the emotion get the better of you. You need to have a 10-second memory and then forget it and move on and get better. Period. Don't lose next time. Danny, can I call out a a major point that I can't get from the show that wasn't in your top 10, but should get honorable mention? This is free moment. Go for it. And I'd love to to hear your thoughts on it. One thing that I pick up a lot in the show is what, how you do it is as important as what you do, right? And that you've heard that phrase in a lot of different ways, but it's how you treat people, how you execute your job, how you present yourself is as important as what you are doing. And it is, it looks right in the face of the ends justify the means. And I just love to know how the two of you think about that as, as a theme that comes out of that show. I have some thoughts, Jay. I totally agree with the fact is Sorry, I wasn't listening. I was trying to look something else up. You might as well just move on. <laughs> sorry. <laughs> you, you are a piece of Bust garbage. Yep. Yeah, I was looking something up. Absolute I'll toss in. I'll toss in while Mr. J thinks about his answer. So when you do a results-only culture and you're going to get slowed down by outside forces, whether it be the polar vortex or inflation or the economy or supply chain shortages, you know, boats off the coast of Long Beach, at some point, the results are going to fail and you're going to go back. And what are you going to do? You're going to say to the sales guy, well, you were judged on your results. You didn't get them. You're fired. And maybe those results were out of their control. The idea is go back and understand the process. How many demos did you do? How many customers did you talk to? How many phone calls did you make? How many events did you go to? 
What was your process for qualifying your customers? And start looking at the nuts and bolts of how you get from A to B, because then you can tweak those little things to move forward. And to me, that goes to what you were saying, Leon, is the process matters because if you do the process right, the results will be there because the results are the results, right? It's in the word. The results tell you whether or not the process worked. But if all you're doing is waiting to see what the results were and you judge based on the results, you're going to be firing a lot of salesmen for things that are outside of their control. Well, and are the results that you're choosing to use as your barometer the correct ones, right? Uh, we're in season two, right? Spoiler, everyone. Season one, they they get relegated, right? Danny talked mm-hmm. about that. So, uh, you know, where are we going to be at in season 10? If the changes they made made them have to take a step back to make three or four steps forward, so be it. So were the results really bad or were the this stepping stone uh completely on par. Right. So I, I, I get, I, I just, I get frustrated when you always have to move in one singular direction. You know, that's why you need these five and 10 and 20 year plans. Like, where do you want to go? Where do you want to be? You watch NFL teams do it all the time. That's a rebuilding year, right? (laughs) NBA teams, thank God there's a lottery, right? Because you could really start to feel them tank at the end of the year. So they get a better draft pick because a singular player can literally turn them into a championship team if you get the right one. So it makes sense for people to lose so that they can win a lot more down the line. And I feel like that's the way that they're kind of going with Ted Lasso uh, and that they had a lot of cancer on the team. And once they started respecting Ted and his method and how he was really a support system for the talent and not a bossy McBosserson who's going to tell them how to do their job better, then they really turned it around. But that, that took time. That took a lot of time out early out of the season. I, I just, I, the ends don't justify the means. You have to have a longer term goal. You can't have a micro, my, myo microscopic or myopic, myopic, myopic view of what your results are supposed to be. And uh, I don't know. I get it's just, isn't that funny? We're just so many different lessons we're pulling from this. I, th- I think it'd be hilarious if the producers of the show are like, you got to hear this. You got to hear how these guys broke down our show. <laughs> we weren't we were doing any of that. <laughs> well, that's the fun part of having these types of conversations because to me, the entire show is about redemption. Mm-hmm. Everybody is looking to be redeemed. They're looking for a second chance. They're looking for a way to make up for what they became. So the easiest example is Jamie Tart. But you could pick any one of those characters in that lineup and they made mistakes that they are now trying to atone for. So Ted was a little bit too healthy with his wife. Um, Beard is a whole episode by himself. So I'm going to set him aside. Roy's too angry. Nate's too timid. Kaylee is too whorish. I mean, (laughs) Kaylee's one that you could unpack for hours. 
Mm-hmm. Like all of a sudden she realizes she has a brain instead of a body. There are all of these different arcs that you're going through are people trying to figure out how to redeem something about their lives that they're unhappy with. And the one that's most pronounced is probably Nate and Rebecca. Yeah. But mm-hmm. Ted brings it out of everybody, which is so interesting because right. innocently his way of well, one liners cognizantly gets these people to think on a different <laughs> level. He's so good. It's so just good. Yeah, so good. For, for everything but tea. <laughs> he hates that dirt water. <laughs> Which is one and of I my love favorite him. parts. It's and I so love good. that about him. And he's so nice about it. Like, nope. Still tastes like dirt water. Nope. Not gonna happen. <laughs> no. How about uh, that was just awful. Carbonated I always thought water. this would be dirty brown water, and I was right. <laughs> <laughs> Oh, it's so good. I think that's but actually I, the I joy love, I look forward I love to Rebecca's watching it again. Arc. I love Nate's arc. I love everything they're doing because they they set up Nate as the puppy in season one. Mm-hmm. And what do you do to anger an audience? You kill the puppy. Mm. And so season three has to be Nate's redemption. I sure hope so. We are not going to have an episode talking about Ted Lasso without giving a little bit to Roy. Roy fucking Kent. Oh, Roy. Final Best character in the show. Best character in the show. Yeah. So what was interesting is that like, you know, immediately when I sat back and I watched it, I was like, Roy Kent, this is Roy Keane. What are you talking about? And for the listeners, um, you can Google him. He's he's on um, Sky, Sky Sports right now as a commentator, which is, it, it, this character is completely based off of Roy Keane, who for Manchester United was their captain. Um, aging captain later in his career, but he is the reality of who Manchester's identity was through their heyday of the nineties with the Beckhams and the skulls and, you know, the butts and that's Nikki butts, not just butts, you know, all the, all the players of gigs who came out, who pretty much was the last one kind of standing, but his influence on the culture the culture of what a soccer team is, which is the same thing, the culture of a company or whoever it is, it was based off of him. So it's very interesting that it, I looked at this show and go, okay, who are the influencers here? It's kind of interesting. Definitely. There's a huge man shitty. I mean, sorry, man city influence <laughs> uh, in there as well as, you know, some of the other kind of players, it's kind of interesting. I mean, like it, it's, it's lovely. It's lovely that, you know, they take, um, some of the characters that out of who Man City is today is this perfect systematic new football. And it's like, yeah, it's shit. It's complete shit. It's not the reality of who, of everyone being able to play that way. But um, my only rant is, is like, I think it's really cool the way they kind of like pick little things in and out of it and, and you can catch little things. And I look forward to watching it again to catch more and more of it as uh, there were uh, little, little nuggets or what they, uh, golden eggs that are inside there. I can tell I you when I, think I do a great the, job as a love letter to soccer, for sure. Yeah. Absolutely. I could tell you when I fell in love with him. Uh, and I mean that in the most platonic way that he <laughs> was when he was talking to and about his niece mm. in the show, that's when he's human. That's when he's a whole different person. And kind of the shields come down and he nails it. Danny, I don't know the line as well as you do. Please let everyone know. But when he's talking about his niece, that 
really struck home. And I was like, this guy's awesome. Awesome. Wait, they just, they just care about your life. They're idiots. Yeah. Yeah. They just want to be part of your life. Right. They just want to be part of your life. 100%. And he's absolutely right. Mm-hmm. Absolutely nailed it. Mm-hmm. He, you don't have to be a total powder puff, sweetie pie to be right. a good guy. We didn't, and we that's didn't what need you a get parade every day. Right. You don't have to, you don't have to be Ned Flanders to be a nice guy. You know, you could be Roy Kent. This is one of the nicest guys in the whole show. And he comes off like a total dick all the time, but he's still genuine, nice, cares about people. Yeah. Wants the right things is in, and is in no way malicious ever, you know? So you don't, the, the, he probably was the biggest swing for me. You know, you watch episode one, two, three, you start to go, you're trying to figure out the characters and who were they trying to jerk. Yeah. This guy's a jerk. This guy's this guy over here. He's a, he's the, he's the talent, but he's kind of a, he's kind of like full of himself. And, you know, Ted's the coach. He's kind of goofy. He says funny things, but he doesn't know what he's doing. Beard's just weird. We're just not going to talk about beard. Uh, you know, Rebecca is, you know, the new owner of the team and all she really is, is vindictive. And, you know, you don't know where it's going early on. You don't realize that all of these people somehow unlock the better side of them throughout it. And you start, uh, you know, with the exception of one, but you start to understand what makes these people tick and where their positivity is best utilized. And that is where I think I really enjoy the show. Like you feel like you're going down a road of, Oh, you know, here we go again. Humanity is going to let me down. Right. Because that's all mm-hmm. we're used to now. And that's where the whole rant started in the first place, which is I can't wait to watch the show and then be completely let down and disappointed humanity again. And then Ted Lasso turns it around. Right. Yeah. And Ted Lasso's, hey, these people turned it around, did the right thing, and somehow still surprised me. And uh, they're going to continue doing that. And I, I kudos, big kudos to the writers of this show because mm-hmm. I'm constantly surprised. I'm impressed by the character development. Uh, you know, you don't need Michael Bay blowing up things left and right. I'm so impressed, Michael Bay. Uh, you know, you need you need a pitch, a couple rooms, some guys wearing some cheap jerseys, and some really good writing. And that's pretty much all we have here. And it's the best show on television. Yep. All right, so uh, uh, let's, go. let's 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 read the show out. Um, this was fun. <laughs> I, can't, uh, I can't wait to do this for Anchorman later on. Oh, we could do a whole series in this. We Hold could on. do hey, a. Uh, let's, we could do. Let's do an in depth. Walk away. Walk away. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> shouldn't There's be fun so- man. He's he's got a fucking newborn. Yeah. Well, we were there. We get it, and we can laugh hysterically at this point. Yeah, but- you can uh, email us at bottleofbrown at gmail.com. You can give us a call at 602-529-4562. You can leave a message for Leon or an email for Leon, for Danny, for Mr. Jones, anybody that we've had on the show. Please let us know what you think about what we talked about tonight. If you have any ideas that you want to share, if you want to refute anything we said, if you have any ideas for content, we want to hear you. We want to know what you're talking about. 
I think, unless I can cut in Mr. Jones, I think that wraps up the show, my man. That was fun. I'm glad we finally got to the Ted Lasso episode. I'm glad we got to the Ted Lasso episode. <laughs> Thank you for joining us tonight. Uh, Enjoy your, your turkey, time. everyone. Same brown time, same brown channel. Bottleofbrown.com. This place is dead anyway, man. <laughs>